Podcast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On this episode of Missing the Point, we're joined by former NHL right-winger, enforcer, and Stanley Cup champion Chris Knuckles Nyland. We'll talk to Chris about his career playing for the Canadians, Rangers, and Bruins, how he battled his addiction with drugs and alcohol, and how his life and career were predominantly featured in the 2011 documentary, The Last Gladiators. This is Missing the Point, episode 77, but it's all relative. Welcome, everyone, to Missing the Point. I'm Bob Kelly, joined by Mark Macangelo. And today, we have a special guest, Christopher Knuckles Nyland. Nyland was born in Boston, Massachusetts, played his youth hockey in West Roxbury, attended Catholic Memorial High School, where he ended up earning himself an opportunity to play college hockey for the Northeastern University Huskies. He ended up being selected 231st overall in a 1978 NHL draft by the Montreal Canadiens. He played in over 680 NHL games, the bruising right wing for, as we mentioned, the Canadians, then the Rangers, and of course, our own Boston Bruins. Notable accomplishments from his career. He's one of the few who have raised the greatest trophy in sports, in my opinion. That's for Stanley Cup. Uh, it was in 1986 with the Canadians. And seventh times in his career, he finished top 10 in penalty minutes, leading the league twice, 83, 84, and 85, and 86. He holds the record for the most penalty minutes by an American-born player. He has 110 career goals, 115 assists. He was the main focal point of a fantastic documentary, Last Gladiators, released in 2011, and also released his own book detailing his life, titled Fighting Back. Ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Nyland. So, you know, just want to start off my first question here. I got to ask, man, being selected 231st overall, for someone who ended up having such a great career as yourself, you know, that to me, that, that's the first thing that jumped out to me. Was there a moment where, you know, you were drafted 231st overall, a moment where everyone went from, oh, this is a guy that was drafted late to, man, this guy has something special. And I really think he has something that can really stick it here in the NHL, like something that really sticks out to you. I don't know about that. I guess I would say for me, when I got drafted again, after I left CM, I did a prep year up in Northwood school. I was fortunate enough. To go to Northeast and my uh, good friend and coach, Judge Paul King, was Chief Justice at Dorchester District Court. And he was my coach uh, growing up outside of CM. And he, Mr. Hanson at CM, kind of steered me to prep school. 
because I was a young senior. And then after prep, the judge was good friends with Frank Flannan. So I got to Northeastern. I got a scholarship thanks to the judge. Then when I was at Northeastern, Judge King was very good friends with Dickie Moore and Doug Harvey, two Hall of Famers in Montreal Canadiens. He asked, Doug Harvey was a scout at the time, and Dickie was a businessman, but he had a lot of sway with the organization. And the judge went to him and asked if they could do him a favor. It just drafted me uh, out of Northeast. So hence being drafted so late, it was a favor to Judge Paul King. The judge told Dickie Moore and Doug, listen, you draft this kid and he'll do the rest. And those are pretty powerful words coming from the judge. I never knew until after my career that he had done this and after his death. So I never really got to thank him. He was a wonderful man, a wonderful coach, a great mentor in my life. And yeah, the rest is history. I got drafted and then I got my opportunity and I got my foot in the door and that's all I needed. So, so knowing... I mean, that's an amazing story. And now I, I just wonder from the organizational standpoint, right? For Montreal, was there any type of, well, we did this kid a favor. We did a friend a favor. Let's see how he pans out. Did you ever feel that? Or did they give you a really good opportunity right off the bat? I don't know how many people knew that. No one really, but other than at the time, the general manager standpoint, when he drafted me, I don't, it wasn't like common knowledge that, you know, it was a favor. I was just drafted with one of the last picks. So that being said, I came to training camp pretty nervous, you know, you know, I don't know if I really stood out and I played physical and I think I scored a goal or two and a couple assists, but telltale sign for me that something might be going on here was they pulled me off the ice one day and said, we wanted to take a, a picture of you for the Canadians book. And I'm like, okay. So I took a picture, you know, and the one with the Afro. And I ended up getting sent to Halifax. I got to Halifax and the previous season in Halifax, the main Mariners who were Philly's farm team at the time, kicked the shit out of the Canadian, the Voyagers. They had a small, fast team, didn't have a lot of team toughness. So the Canadians that following year drafted a lot of size and toughness from the Ontario Hockey League in our West. And I went to camp, Britt Templeton, who was known to be a guy who loved fighters. He was a tough coach. He always had tough teams. Was first year with Nova Scotia. And Timmy Burke, who's now assistant GM in San Jose, was my roommate from Melrose, Mass. University of New Hampshire. Timmy kind of took me under his wing when I got to Halifax. He said, listen, this guy, Britt Templeton, he does not like college kids. So don't screw up, get in line, listen, watch the drill. Don't be first to go. And sure enough, Richie Costello, get out of Merrimack, first in line, goes and screws the drill up. Bert Templeton, <laughs> ah, I'm stuck. He blows the whistle. Costello, you fucking idiot. I thought you fucking college kids are supposed to be smart. You dumb fuck, get in the back of the line. So I'm like, ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to watch while I do the drill. And I did. And 
we started doing these one-on-one drills in front of the net. We had to battle for the puck, defensive cross check, you know, like old school shit. And, you know, I was in there fucking battling, big guy. Anyway, I end up with a five-game tryout for $200 of the game. I didn't have a contract. They gave me a five-game tryout. I had one play an exhibition game, and I end up, I'll tell you the story, the big Dave Allison, he was a tough kid out of Ontario League. He, I ended up pushing and shoving with this guy in the ice. His name was Bam Bam Belanger. Big guy, tough Frenchman. And I push him, I get back to the bench, and Allison looks on the bench. He goes, hey, fucking college kid, you ever been in a fucking brawl before? You're trying to sign a fucking brawl? You've never been in a fight in your life. I said, fuck you. You know what a fucking fight is? Fuck you. I went out the next shift, and I punched the shit out of Belanger. So now I come back and now this fucking Allison's looking at me, the coach. Like, well, I like this kid. Anyway, the regular season <laughs> starts and I don't say a fucking word to Allison. I wouldn't even look at it. So he's shitting his pants. <laughs> I got a five game tryout, 200 bucks a game. We go into, no, the first three games in Halifax. I don't play one of them. We go on the road. Next game is in me. And they kicked the shit out of the Canadians. Yeah, like I said, the Voyagers. Yeah. Anyway, boom. I, I'm happy. I'm going to make 200 bucks. Play hockey. I'm getting paid. whoop de doo Anyway, I go out the first shift. I run the kick Cochran, Glenn Cochran, who was a, a tough guy in the league. He was 6'4", 230 pounds, whatever. Big kid from the Western Hockey League. Grew up fighting. Tough kid. Anyway, I hit him, and he shot me, and I turned around, and I slashed him. He dropped his glove. I dropped my glove. Away we went. I fucking hit him with a right, and I gashed his eye wide open, bleeding like a pig. I give it to him, and boom, we get thrown out of the game. He goes nuts. He wants to get at me, and I'm trying to get at him. They throw us out of the game. The next day, I get up in the morning, and I get a phone call from the coach. And he says, hey, Beaner. He called me Beaner because I'm in Beantown. Fucking idiot. <laughs> he says, can you come down in the room? I got to talk to you. I'm like, oh, shit. When I getting sent to Flint, the International League or what? I didn't know because I get kicked out of the game. I was all night. I'm glad I was naive to what pro hockey really was. And I come down in the room. He says, hey, um, do you have an agent? And I said, no, I don't have an agent. He said, well, you've been a fucking gambling because Montreal just called me and they want to sign you to a contract. Got one fight in the American That's League. awesome. And I had a contract the next day and I, I was off and running. That's amazing, man. And little did everyone know that, you know, you're, they're telling you, you can't fight. Listen, I know from personal experience, from some of the stories that I've heard that you grew up, you could definitely fight growing up. So... The fact that they came to you and challenged you that, you must have been sitting there like, this is my opportunity right well, now. It it's time to go. Yeah. It helped me. It certainly helped me. I had the mentality part. Never fought on the ice. I only fought the street. But it certainly served me well in, in my career. I played 49 games in Halifax. The big thing was they had people there watching me every night, scouts from the Canadians, which I didn't know. They were watching all the games. I played in 49 games. I had 15 goals and 10 assists, which is a point every two games. I had 304 minutes of penalties. 
Guys don't get that in fucking season. <laughs> Some guys don't get that. Some guys get that in a full seat in the American League. Anyway, I was on to, I was on my way to, I fought every fucking guy. And once I beat Cochran, everybody in the league who was a fighter wanted to fight me. You know, and that's how it went. And 49 games in, I got the call, first game in Atlanta, and I never went. Is that what led you to become a, a, and really embrace that nickname, the fact that everyone kept calling everyone, that that's what made you make it no, to that next level? I, I got, got the nickname those. in college. I got the nickname in college by uh, my best friend in college and teammate, Jerry Dwyer, because I had broke my hand uh, a couple times off the ice. I had one time I had teeth in my hand. I ended up in the hospital. I had an infection. Another time I broke one of my knuckles and I missed some time. So anyway, I always come in the hockey, my knuckles were cut up or something was black eye or whatever. And so the nickname came in college and then just kind of stuck uh, with me. And, you know, they got on to it here in Montreal. And I guess it, it uh, fit my persona as a player. So, so that was your first professional fight, we'll call it, right? Um, I guess my, my question is, who is a player that you always wanted to get your hands on in the league, but you never were able to? I, no one. You know, no, no one. There was none of that. You know, most guys who do that job fight. I, I never overestimated guys, and I never underestimated guys. I treated them all the same. I knew if they were righties. I knew if their tendencies were, if they were lefties. And that came after I fought O'Reilly. I fought Jonathan first and then O'Reilly. And I had Doug Jarvis to my center ice in my first year. We got kicked out of the faceoff guard. Both centermen did. We were playing the Bruins. I already fought Jonathan. And then O'Reilly was on the ice with me. And I went in to take the faceoff, and he did too. And I won the draw, and he got pissed, and he shot me and I fucking chopped him back and then we dropped the glove. Now I know he's a lefty and I control my left but I'm a better right and I just boom I threw two quick punches and he come back with a left and hit me right in the button and hit me again and I was kind of out on my feet like I couldn't see my blood was pouring out of my head and I ended up going to the penalty box and you know, he give me the, you know, a lamp, you know, I'm like, really? I fucking know you, asshole. And guy, I always respected as a, as the kid growing up and, you know, certainly as a, an opponent, he was, he, you know, he, he's played hockey the way the game was supposed to be played. And, uh, I got to the penalty box and I sat there and I said to myself, I can never let that happen again. And what I'm talking about is I just went toe-to-toe with him. I went strength on strength. And I said, if I do that, you know, I was, wasn't as big as the rest of them in the league, the fighters. A lot guys a lot bigger. I said, I got to fight smart. I can't let guys hang me out at the end of their arm. And, uh, you know, my punches are going short. I got to use my head. And I did. That was probably the best thing that happened to me early on. And... I started to, when I fought guys, I, w- I would take away their strength and then pick my way through the fight. And if that, if, you know, if they were good, you know, lefties, I, I, and I'm better righty, I'd take away the right 
and I'd swing with my left. Some guys can't do that. And then I'd switch and I'd go back righty. I'd throw uppercuts. Uh, I'd change things up. And quite honestly, after that, I never really got hurt in a fight. I mean, I got a couple s- stitches one time, couple, you know, bumps on the head. I never really got hurt bad after that. That was the worst punch I took early on in my career. After that, I, I didn't take a whole lot. That leads me to my next question. So you said you didn't have someone that you wanted to fight. Is there anyone that you did fight that, A, you might have had a rivalry with that you knew you were fighting every single time you're playing them, and B, the best fight that you ever had, where, where after you were done, you're like, wow, that was like going 12 rounds in a boxing match. Yeah, well, Dave Brown, probably before the game, Philly, that was a long fight. You know, he had no shirt on. I had a jersey on. I had to kind of pick my way and figure that fight out. But I fought him for almost 15 minutes. Stop, take a break. You know, he was tired, too. It was a brawl before the game. There were no linesmen on the ice or referees. So that was a little crazy, I guess. I don't know, Don Jackson, I had a good one on him, Daryl Stanley, Philly, Chikrin, Cocknut, Ruby. like, yeah, there's so many fights. Like, I didn't, you know, I just did pretty good in most of my fights. You know, I wasn't, you know, knocking guys out left and right, but I did well in my fights, and, you know, the key in the NHL at the time you know, I was more scared. I wasn't scared. I was more scared of losing a fight than anything because guys start losing fights and it's like, oh, fuck, we better get someone else, you know? So I kind of, that was probably the, the thing that worried me most, but it did and it didn't. So, you know, I was confident in my abilities. I was able to do it. I had a good knack for doing it. And, you know, I, I could have never done the job, though, unless I didn't play. I couldn't fucking sit on the bench and go out there and fight. And then, you know, sit in the fucking bench the rest of the game. I couldn't do that. So that drove me to become a better player. So that actually kind of leads me to something that my dad brought up was that coming up, you know, you were always known as one of the tough kids. When you broke into the hockey league, you were known as one of those tough kids. And you just mentioned it where you turned yourself into an all-around hockey player. Was there a moment where you realized that, you know what, fighting and being tough and doing this isn't going to get me to that next level? I really need to to do this or that in order to extend my career or excel me to that next level I want to be at? Well, I was at the level you know, being the NHL, but it was, the question was, <clears throat> you know, are you going to be an everyday player? You're going to sit in the fucking bench, which I didn't want. I was fortunate enough to be with an organization that quite frankly, didn't want me to be just a fighter. They wanted me to be a player. And they worked with me day in. I, they had a, the perfect student and they had great teachers and they helped me. I worked every day on the fundamentals, skating, passing, shoot, different situational things they worked with me on. And, you know, it drove me and they really helped me become that guy who could be put on the ice in any situation, whether it was to get a goal and to be the guy standing in front of the net, to be the guy going into the corner, coming up with the puck or defending a lead. So, you know, I got to that point and it's probably, again, for me, it was, that was what I was most proud of in my career. The fact that I became an everyday player, the fighting thing, you know, I enjoyed it. A lot of people say, oh, I hated it. And then, 
I, I enjoyed it. There, yeah, I had my nights. It was tough and, it, you know, it can wear on your son. But, you know, I loved what I was doing. So, so, so being a guy, a, a local guy here in, in Boston, what was your first thought when you saw that you were selected by the Montreal Canadiens? Like, what, was there any of how am I going to explain this to, to the boys? Like, I, I hate them. Now I'm playing for them. Yeah. Yes and no. I, 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 I was just happy to be drafted. Quite I just, you know, I was hoping I would. But, you know, I had penalty minutes in college. But, you know, you can't fight. I, they were most of them were like repping or, you know, physical penalties. And, you know... I just, like I said, I was happy to be drafted. And it was the Canadians. I remember watching 78, 79, the playoffs, when they beat Boston. Too many men in the ice. I was pissed off because I wanted to see the Bruins win. They could never beat them. And even though I was drafted, I still was a Bruins fan. But that changed pretty quick. What were your first impressions of that organization? Because based on so uh, what you said so far, I mean, you have nothing but rave reviews about your experience there. And I think that for being a Bruins fan, it's, we always like, just like to paint them as the enemy, but for someone that came from here and went there, how do they treat you? What were they like? First class all the way. The only time I had a beef with it was the organization was when I had been drafted and it was 78, 79. I went in to the Boston garden with a friend of mine to watch practice. And after the practice, well, during the practice, he said, hey, why don't you go see somebody with the organization and ask him if we get tickets the next game in Montreal and we'll drive up and go catch a game. I mean, good idea. So I go down, stand in the hall. Clorel was there at the time, stand in the hall. And I asked him, I said, hey, hey I know you're with the Canadian organization. I was drafted by you guys. I want to know if I get some tickets. He said, oh, I don't handle that. This man over there. And that was a guy's name was Howard Grenman. He was the road secretary. And Howard, since I went up to him, I said, listen, here's the deal. I was drafted by you guys, Mr. Grenman, Howard. I said, and I'd love to get tickets up there for the next game. If that's possible. He said, you were drafted by us. What's your name? Where'd you put? I said, I played at Northeastern. I was drafted last year, 78, last time. And he got the guidebook out. And he went through the pages and he looked, he said, sure enough, yeah, you got, I'll have two tickets next game in Montreal. I leave the building with my friend, Franny Flaherty from South Boston. He had a big Lincoln Continental, um, Mach 5, badass looking kind <laughs> We pull around the corner, the guy in Rant Causeway, and there's Jacques Lemaire, Guy Lafleur, and Gilles Lupien. And they're looking for a cab, and there's no cabs around it. Trainee said, Fuck, I'm going to give him a ride. So we pull up, say, hey, you guys want to ride the hotel? And they're kind of looking at us. They all got Stanley Cup rings on, and they're looking like, these fucking guys are going to ride us. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they get in the car, and we take them over to the high Hyatt Sea came. And we're driving over, and Lemire's behind me. LeFleur's in the middle. No, LeFleur's the outside. Lupien was in the middle. And the floor is smoking a pot. You got the Stanley Cup ring on. I go, I say, hey, you guys, we're going off the next game. But I said, next year, I'm going to be up there with you guys. I'm going to play with you guys. I'm going to be at training camp. So Lemire goes, how are you going to do that? I said, well, I played college hockey here. I was drafted by the Canadians last year. He said, really? Uh, what round were you drafted? I said, the 17th. The three of them started fucking laughing at me. 
thinking, oh, yeah, you got a fucking chance, kid. And anyway, we go up the, the game. We dropped Mod. Went to the game at the Boston Garden that night. We're going to the next game in Montreal. I get there. I walk in. I say, hey, tickets for Chris Island. Lady looks. She goes away. She comes back with the ticket. She said, yeah, that'll be $280. Fuck you. <laughs> so we Franny put in his credit card. I didn't have that bunch of kind of money. I was like, well, it's crazy. Jesus. So like I'm putting a piece and I'm like, you send the bitches. <laughs> that's, that's the difference between a first round pick and a 17 They don't have to pay for their fucking tickets. I did. They're not going to pay you as much and they're going to make you pay for your shit. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only time I was pissed at the organization. I got I to gotta ask a follow up to that. Did they ever mention that? Did they ever mention that again, those three guys, about you oh, picking yeah. them up yet? And I'll tell you how they did it. That training camp, and we're at training camp, and the first year, and I'm in the locker room, and I was put with a team. You know, they broke these up into four different teams, and you played a round-robin scrimmage thing. Anyway, I'm in the locker room, and I'm getting ready, and I'm looking. I'm on LaFleurski, and he keeps looking at me. He's looking at me, looking at me, and he looks, and... I fucking stare right back at him. And he goes, you're the kid, huh? You're the kid from Boston. You're the kid who gave us a ride. You said you were going to be. I said, I fucking told you I'd be. Here. Anyway, we go on the ice and we play. And no worry of a lie. Julian is on the other fucking teams. So we're going. And he's a tough guy. He's like six, seven, fucking fought everybody. Anyway, I'm lined up against him. He's fucking staring at me. Keep looking at it. Oh, fuck. I'm going to have to fight this guy. And he goes, it's you, Tabanak. It's you, the kid from Boston. I said, I fucking told you I'd be here. So then away we go. And Lemaire had left that year. He went over to Switzerland. And he was the third guy who was there. So he went over to Switzerland. And he played. This season is short. And he came back during February, March. You like the beginning of April, and we used to go to lunch every day across the street. I come sauntering in one day, and Larry Ronson's there, sitting there with Lamette. So they're talking. I guess Lamette says to him, Who, Who's that fucking kid, that new kid in Ireland? You know, the one who's doing all the fighting. And he said, Oh, he's just coming in right now. And I come in, I sat down, and Larry goes, Hey, Chris, uh, I want to introduce you to Jacques Lamette. I'm like, Hey, Jacques, how you doing? How's everything? He goes, Have a knack. It's you. You're the kid. You give us a ride there. I said, I fucking told you I'd be here. And I'm telling you, no word of a lie. He fucking laughed his out. This guy became my favorite coach. He was a guy who really helped me fine tune my skills to where I could play every fucking day. He was the guy. He took a special interest in me. Since that day in the kind, I said, I'm going to be playing with you guys next year. He never forgot that. Never forgot it. And he took an interest in me and helped me be more than just a fighter. Incredible. That, that's an amazing story. And again, I, I just want to keep kind of harping, you know, touching on the fact that you're one of us. You're from here and you went to play there. So what we know what the, we know what the rivalry is like for, you know, we never know how big it was back in the 80s or the 70s because we weren't there. Right. But. What was it like up in Montreal? How much do they hate Bruins fans, or did they even care at that point? Well, 
they do and they don't. Like, I think there's a healthy respect there in a sense. But there's always some fucking loudmouth asshole who gets drunk and fucks it up for the rest of them. Like, I remember when I was retired, I took my son to a game. And I'm in there with him. And these two fucking kids, I don't know, around 25. And the kid sees me with my son. Hey, fucking Niall, you think you're fucking tough? Blah, 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 right? Oh well, yeah. I said, Chris, wait here. And they walked away. They walked by smart ass fucks drunk, right? So I said, Chris, wait here. I walked up behind the two of them. They were walking along together. I grabbed both their fucking heads and I went, boom, and I smashed their fucking head together. <laughs> you out with the fuck on the head. Fuck you, you punk fuck. <laughs> so off they went. My little my son Chris, he argued the dad, you're fucking nuts. I said, hey, fuck them. Fucking two punks. But I was at a game with my son after that when I retired. And the next day I, I saw it in the newspaper. And, and I was walking to my car and I'm surprised I, I, I got a bad timing. I missed it because I would have fucking helped this kid. There's a young kid. I don't know. He's like 18 years, 19 years old down there at the game. He had an ab shirt on. And a kid with a brewing shirt with shit face. And he's spitting on him and tell him you fucking this and that and the kids and hey come on it's just a game you know fuck you he sucker punched him kid had glasses on broke his glasses the glass then he started fucking booting him apparently somebody jumped in and helped the kid cops came anyway they arrested the fucking dope and the kid was in the hospital the next day mass general he fucking in there for two days so you get those fucking assholes and, and for the most part, yeah, I think the fans have a healthy respect for one another, their organizations. You know, they always look at the Bruins as the top team. The fan base in Boston always demands the top team, blue-collar, hard-working team. And the fans here, you know, they were spoiled for so long, and they expected their team to be in the Stanley Cup uh, every year. They still do. Do the players feel it? Like, do you know, like, when you're playing Boston as a Canadian or vice versa, like, do, do you get up for that game or is it just another day in the office? Come on, those games are the best games during the season. Like, we played them four times in fucking preseason, had to fight every fucking idiot they brought in. <laughs> and then you got to play them eight times during the year. Four times in Boston, they play four times up here. How can you not fucking hate each other? And then playoffs come and it's like, the problem with the Bruins back then is they never, you know, they always try to out-tough the Canadians. Like, well, we're going to fucking beat you up. And they always did something fucking stupid that they shot themselves in the foot. They had a great team. And I'm going to tell you, there were times. I, I, I get to the point where I kind of felt bad for some of the guys because they had some good guys on that team that I, I liked and respected. And, like, I felt bad for O'Reilly. Rick Middleton, I felt bad, man. Fucking Ray Block. I'm like, these poor fucking bastards, they just can't beat us. But they always fucking do something stupid that screws them. <laughs> there was always some fucking idiot that was going to be an idiot. And believe me, I've been a fucking idiot too before. Seems like nothing's <laughs> changed. I feel like the Bruins are still doing that nowadays. And, oh. and they get there. But so I have to ask, man. So uh, that brings me back to that Zidane Chara incident. What was that? five, six years ago, where he checked the Canadian into the boards. They had oppression charges, that whole thing. 
what was the vibe around Montreal then, like around Zidane? Were people actually like ready to prosecute this dude? Do they want him to go to jail for assaulting him? I hated him. They hated him a lot. Max brought that on himself. You know, he scored a ball and showered on the ice and he kind of fucking pushed him after the goal from behind. And Max is not a fighter. You know, he's not tough like that. And he fucking was stupid to do it. But after he did it, you know, Char was going to get even with him. And, you know, I, I give Max a lot of credit for trying to beat this guy wide. But it, it wasn't a good time to do it. He, he got the fuck right over his blue line. He didn't have a whole lot of time to get speed up and back him off. So Chara, because he had numbers coming back, was able to stand up really good in the neutral zone. He just fucking cranked him. And, yeah, that was unfortunate, but, you know, payback's a bit. <laughs> sure is. So I want to kind of just segue a little bit from your from the career and talk just a, a little bit about your infamous connection. I just have one quick question. Yeah. And we can cut it if you don't like it. Do you remember where you spent uh, the 10 crisp $100 bills that he peeled off for you that night? Yeah. What was the name of the restaurant? The Lady in White. It was over by the Prudential Center. An awesome restaurant. I forget the name, but the Lady in White was the manager. And she was really, I think she was like, oh, I got it. Cafe Budapest. And the lady in white. That's where I spent it. Don Perignon, caviar, everything. <laughs> it's a hell of a way to spend it. That's all I said. It's like a few bucks in my pocket too, believe me. But As you get it. Get it. All right. So I got to ask, besides you, who's the toughest NHL player you ever played? The guy that you were like, man, this guy is a tough bastard. I would never go up there. Well, Clark Gillies was tough. O'Reilly. There's so many tough guys in the league. Like, you got to respect them and you got to, like I said, I treated them all the same that way. Like, I, I looked at them all as tough. And Baruby, Chick Grant, Cockner, Jerry Miller. The fucking guys are tough that do that job. You know, it's like, like I said, I, I, that's a question I, that's how I answer it. They're all fucking tough. You know, guys who do that job, there's no pushovers, there's no phonies, there's no fucking tiptoeing through the tulips. So, yeah, it, um, all of them up. Do you think the NHL did the right thing back then? Like, were, were they trying to protect you or, or were they almost trying to say, like, no, go out there and do that. And like, who cares what happens to you? Well, the, I would say like the NHL or ju just the culture back then, because you mentioned before, you never wanted to lose a fight because you might get benched. So do you think that, do you think that it's changed a little bit? Oh, I mean, obviously it has over the years and do you, I guess, do you remember watching or playing when you noticed, man, they're making a switch now? No, not really. I, I, here's the deal. That whole NHL it had nothing to do with them. It was the team you're with. You know, if you, my whole thing was you start losing. I always saw it. Guys start losing fights, so they're not fighting as much anymore. They're closer to the fucking exit. They'll get somebody else that wants to do it. I had Lemire as a coach told me, slow down fighting. You fight too much. He said, you fucking, you got guys out there that don't want to go near you. Use that room to score goals, to play the game. And 
you know, I looked at him like, are you fucking shitting me? You're going to tell me I'm fighting too much? And like, I almost didn't trust him. But I did because I, I had such a respect for him. But he wanted me to score ball. He wanted me to play it. Yeah, not forget where I came from, but slow down a little on the fight. And I didn't. <laughs> I, I just, I didn't because I couldn't. I just had that one, you know, I, he's telling me to slow down. Someone fucking said, hey, we're going, I, hello. Or someone does something. I got to be the guy who's there, not fucking jock, me. So it's easy to say that. And, you know, I always say to myself, and I stay true to myself, and it almost broke me when I got traded. But I always said, if a coach tells me to go and fight or makes that effort, they're going to tell him go fuck himself. So don't ever tell me to fight. And because I knew how to do my job, right? I knew how to do it. Like Lemire told me, I fought too much. Slow down. Okay, I can take that. But don't tell me to go fight anybody. And that's how I ended up getting traded. Because he told you to go fight? Like he requested? Well, he inferred it. You know, we were going through a bad time. Jean Perron was the coach at the time, and he, he was just a, a fucking idiot and, and a real idiot. He was a dummy as a coach. He didn't have a fucking clue. And we won the Stanley Cup with this guy, but the guy who kept the team together with Bob Ganey and Larry Robinson. And it was down toward the end of the season, and we were struggling a bit. And he come around the room, started fucking ripping into this guy, that guy. And he came to me, he said, and not uh, Chris, when I learned, when is the last time you had a fight? And I said, huh? I said, you fucking telling me to go fight? What the fuck do you know about fight? Fuck you. <laughs> I told him in front of him. And fuck. He went, yeah. He called the GM, Serge. He was a good friend and had a lot of respect for me and loved me. It still does today, and I love him. But I put him in a bad situation, sir. It was either me or the coach, and he picked the coach. And he sent me packing. And then he fired the fucking idiot two months later. <laughs> Three months later. At the end of the season, he fired him. And, and, and the guy who was in line, Pat Burns, I was good friends with Berenzi. And I was perfect for Berenzi. I would have thrived under him instead. Anyway... It almost broke me getting traded. I, I never wanted to play for another fucking team. Once I was here, once I was part of this, I never wanted to play anywhere else. Do you think that decision would have been different if it wasn't at the end, of, if it wasn't in the middle of the season? If those ends of the season, he calls the GM and says, hey, listen, Chris or me, do you think the GM's like, well, listen, man, this is Chris, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, if that happened at the end of the season, yeah. And like the deadline would have been over, trade deadline. I wouldn't have got traded. You know, he, he was gone anyway. But, you know, I did put Serge in a, a difficult spot, but he made his choice. And I wasn't happy with it. So you, you, you talked about winning the Stanley Cup and, and, and change, change pivot a little bit here. What was that like, man? I, I have to ask because... That, that's been something that I always see that as the toughest trophy to get in sports. The longest journey in sports to a championship. And, and when they win the cup, it just seems like it means the most to these guys. So so what was that feeling like actually being able to lift? And, and, and did you kiss it? Did you kiss the cup? I got to know. 
No, I, I'll be honest with you. It, it was awesome. It's, you know, it's a very difficult road to get there. You know, I started the playoffs. I was 203. I was about 192 at the end. I had a black guy and I could hardly walk. The second last game, I tore ligaments in my ankle in a fight. My ankle snapped onto me and it, my ankle was like a freaking the deciding game in Calgary. I went in the warm up. They ejected me and froze it and they watched me skate and warm up and surf. I said, I'm fine. I can go. And Serge said, uh, big boy, he said, no, you can't skate. You can't keep up. And I said, I can fucking play. I'll, I can play someone. No, no, we got to put someone else. You got to think of the team. And my biggest regret was that I wasn't on the ice with my uniform on, sweating my balls off and being there at the end. Being able to lift that cup, I was in a fucking suit. So it was still awesome. Let me tell you, it was still awesome, but I, I was just bummed I wasn't on the ice, right? Yeah. You just talked a little bit about how everything changed for you when you were traded, right? when you were. So what was the experience like in New York and in Boston? Like, did, did coming back to Boston after, did that lessen the blow or was it just too little too late at that point? Yeah, I went there at the end when I was in Boston. Rangers, you know, I had a few injuries. I broke my arm twice. I told me my knee. I was a mess there. And and maybe that was just catch, all catching up to me. And I ended up getting traded to Boston. And I my first year there was fun. It was good. And I ended up breaking my fucking in playing basketball on the parquet. You know, I got Milbury name in the All-Star team. I missed the game because of my ankle. And then in my second year, they fucked around with me a lot. Bonus was the coach. I love playing for Millbury. Rick Bonus was the coach who really is a nice guy, but he was a puppet at that time for Harry Sendon and Mike. And I remember the beginning of the year, the Bruins always go on that long road trip because the circus is in town. And I go on the road trip. First of all, I was on the B squad in fucking training camp. They fucked with me. Yeah. Anyway, I'm with the team. I go on the road. And Lyndon Byers and Alan Stewart are with the team, both fighters. I go on that road trip. I don't play one game. It's like six-game road trip. Fucking practice every day, ride the bike, stand ready. The last game before I go home is in Chicago Stadium. Stewart had been fighting all trip. Baez had been fighting all the time. And here I am on the bike. I remember I'm in, I went to warm up. I meant, fuck, I'm going to play in Chicago. And I'm on the bike after warm up. And he comes, he said, you're not going. And I said, okay, I'm fucking riding the bike and bonus couldn't lie. He said, I'm really proud of the way you're dealing with it. I'm like, fuck you. I didn't even look at him, right? So they go, they play the game. We fly home the next day. The following day, we get to practice, and Stewart got sick of hockey, got sick of fighting, and he went, got this kind of took off. He went back to fucking wherever he's from, out way, way the fuck up somewhere. I don't know. And he, he got in the car and left. So he's gone. We get in practice. 
Baez takes a slap shot off the ankle, breaks his foot. After practice, we go in, sitting in, and Rick Bonus comes in, fucking all jovial, and they come there, he knuckles, yeah, fucking ready to go in the morning. I said, Rick, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Wouldn't expect any other answer. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, go fuck yourself. You think I'm going to go through a fucking wall for you the way you fucking treated me? Fuck you. So... Especially after being in the league for 11 years to be relegated to the B squad, almost make the all-star team one year, and then all of a sudden you're the shoe-in after two guys get hurt? Yeah, no, I don't blame you on that one, man. Yeah, I wasn't happy. And anyway, June for general, we wrote an article in the Herald. I, I had sat out for like another two or three games. He wouldn't play me, just practice, bust my ball in practice. And anyway, Milbury finally... Joe wrote an article, Millberry ought to get up his ass and, you know, have Nylon and Bonus settle this thing so he can play again. So I go and sit down with Bonus and Millberry and uh, Mike said, Chris, you can't fucking tell that. Because, I mean, Mike, here's the deal. I'm not fucking Ray Bork and I ain't fucking Cam Neely, but I've been in this fucking game as long as they have, okay? I put my fucking time in. I fucking did my job. I still do my fucking job. I get treated by shit like, but by this coach and I wasn't fucking happy with it. All of a sudden he wants me to fucking come carry the fucking flag and blow the bugle and fucking shoot the gun too. Fuck you. So he said, well, can we put this by? I said, yeah, but just fucking a little fucking respect with you. That's all I'm asking for. You don't fucking respect me. I ain't fucking respecting you. So finally now with it. And the next night we play New Jersey. He fucking plays me like 20 minutes. I, I couldn't even fucking breathe by the end of the game. He said, oh, you want to play? You know, he had to bust my balls. I'll fucking show you a play. He put me out, doubles chipped at me, but I ended up scoring two fucking goals. <laughs> and anyway, and then the end of the season, the trade deadline and, and was coming and waivers. They put me on waivers. So I got on the phone and I called Sir Chabot. Quietly, and I said, Serge, please get me the fuck out of here. Please bring me back for you so I can fucking do this fucking play. I got to go. He said, okay. He said, but I'm going to pick you up like 30 seconds, 20 seconds before the deadline is done because I don't want somebody to, you know, cut you off. Yeah. And cut me off and take you ahead of me. So anyway, he waited the, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting the clock at three o'clock. I'm going, oh shit, is he going to do it? And he did. He picked me up. I came back to Montreal. I retired to Montreal Canadian. And that was it. I was fucking, thank you. See you later. Are you okay if I ask a question about the addiction and your sobriety now? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, awesome. So I, I know that the movie The Last Gladiator is a documentary. Um, it really painted a, a, a great picture of your career, but I think the best, the better story is the fact that you were down and out and you got back up. And then there was a quote, I think, I think it was in USA Today, where you mentioned that doing that documentary helped you maintain your sobriety, just talking a little bit about it. So without going too in, in detail, if you don't want to, when did you realize like that it was, that you had a problem that it was really bad and what made you decide to change it? Well, the thing is, like, I knew I had a problem. I just didn't know how to get out of it at the end. And I guess, really, I just knew my life was going nowhere. I was fucked up. You know, I was taking 
Percocet that turned into Oxycontin, which turned into heroin. Something I said I'd never do, but I did. And I guess, yeah, I just hit fucking rock bottom and I, I needed help. And I had a phone number to call uh, a guy from the NHL who does all the interventions. He's from Worcester, Mass. His name's Dan Cronin. And I had Dan's number and I called him and I said, Dan Cronin, he said, yeah, who's this? And I said, Chris Nyland. He said, oh, I've been waiting for your call. <laughs> anyway, he had me on a plane the next day and off I went. I was in treatment for three months. And yeah, yeah, it was a difficult time. But listen, it's part of my life. Not who I am. Yeah. Uh, but it's like the hockey. So it was part of my life. It's not who I am. But I certainly, do I wish it never happened? In a sense, yeah, but it, it did. So I'm not going to wallow in the shit and be yeah. ashamed of it. I, I did it. It happened. I was addicted to pain medication. I ended up on heroin. It was a terrible place to be. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and, you know, I get back on my feet and I'm strong and healthy today. And I, I got a happy life. I'm happier than I've been. And honestly, I was pretty happy when I was playing hockey, but I've never been this happy in my life, to be honest. That's amazing. I, I do just want to ask one question because I was, I was reading at the USA Today article and there's one thing, and now that I've actually talked to you, I can read this in your voice. I think when, because you were an enforcer, right? Everyone would say, well, do you think that your role in hockey had a lot to do with your addiction? And your quote, my addiction has as much to do with my role as an enforcer as it did the fact that my mother stabbed me with a diaper pin when I was a month old. And now voice, that's such a good lie because I feel like that, that's a picture people tried to paint. Because you took a lot of head blows, right? You had a lot of boxes. Yeah, they do. And, and again, it's, you know, addiction is, it usually spawns from some type of trauma, childhood trauma could be one of them, some type of abuse, the way you grow up, the environment you're in. And, you know, part of it could be, and was probably the fighting, but it, it, no, like I said, no more of a issue than any other stuff I dealt with growing up. So, yeah, it's your whole life. It encompasses your whole life, not just a portion of it. That, that's great to hear. And then to pivot to, you just talked about growing up. I have a couple stories that my dad asked me to see to see if he would talk about with me. So one specifically, he said he didn't know if he would remember this. He said he was in. It was like seventh or eighth grade and you were in science class together and you had this, this scalpel or needle or something. In the ninth grade in biology class. And I, I had like a thread on my pants and I went to cut it with the scalpel and I fucking cut right into my, I'm looking at it right now. I get my leg like, and the blood was pouring out like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. I remember that right on that. Yeah, he was sitting there telling me, he's like, man, and, and I, I couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, I looked over, there was fucking blood everywhere. And Chris was just sitting there like, I don't know I was afraid to go tell the brother because I thought he was going to kick the fucking <laughs> shit out of me. That's what they did back then, the brothers, right? Oh, I brother Bennett I had. I'm mean, Hey, I cut myself with a scalpel. He looked at me. You better go down the... I thought he was going to fucking hit me off the head with a biology book. Because he hit me off the fucking head with a French book before the bastard. If I ever saw him today, I'd knock his fucking teeth off. 
Knock us someone's teeth out brings me to my next one. Mm-hmm. Eddie Harrington. Do you remember the name Eddie Harrington? My dad told me story. Yeah, that you absolutely whooped his ass one time where he walked into school one day and my dad looked at him and was just like, oh my God. I, I got to know, is that a true one or, or, or is he exaggerating a little bit? It was another kid I fought that I, I don't believe I fought Eddie Harrington. I think it was another kid that I fought that Eddie had a beef with too. Now, I'm not sure, but yeah, I did give that kid, whoever it was, and I don't think it was it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it when. It's in a kid, Bagley or Bagley? I don't know. But yeah, Eddie Harrington was a tough kid. Played child son kid. He played football at CM with your brother. I didn't play football. The coach O'Connor tried to get me to play, be a the punt or whatever. I, I didn't want to play football. I loved hockey. I just wanted to play hockey. Did you ever fight my dad? No. Ah. Uh, um, hey, 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 come on. <laughs> no, you're down to good guy. No, he is. I know. I had to ask. So, Chris, man, so that, that'll, that'll wrap it up over us. Tell everyone where they can find you, what they can look out from you. If you have any shows, anything going on, let them know, man. All right, you guys, you can't fucking find me anywhere, so don't look. No. <laughs> I, I'm on, uh, I do a radio show here on Montreal on TSN, you know, ESPN Canada, <laughs> ESN 690, Montreal. I do it from noon to three every day during the hockey season. And we, we do... You know, NFL, but it's hockey-centric. You can watch, you can get the show online. TSN 690 Montreal, listen live. My website, knucklesnyland.com. We got memorabilia. We got some awesome hoodies, t-shirts, new logo. We just pumped out. So, yeah, that's where you can find me, knucklesnyland.com and, and TSN 690. Other than that, you got to cross the board and see me, and you fucking guys can't get up yet. I'm not, I'm not getting across the board. That's for sure. I can get home though. I, I can get across the board. I think I can. Oh, they just opened the board. Yeah. They just opened it. There we go. I'm coming home. Well, don't anyone go looking for him now, please. I'm coming. Well, on that note for Chris Nyland, Nyland. There you go. Both time. Right. You ready? Fucking dope slap. Mommy. <laughs> Listen, if I ever actually meet you face to face, I will let you punch me in the face. It, it, just for the story. In yeah, be, because you'd have to let him, dude. You'd have to let him punch you, right? He, you know him. No, I, I would never do that. But for Chris Nyland, Mike Marcangelo, I'm Bob Kelly. This has been an awesome, guys. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B, and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.